This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, we all know someone that we've accused of main character syndrome. Maybe a bit self-centred. I mean, obviously, we're all the star of our own lives. But there is a trend that you might have noticed on TikTok that turns this whole thing upside down. It's no longer about being the lead. It's all about being the background character. Later, we're asking why people are pretending to be NPCs, non-playable characters on TikTok. What does it say about us? Also coming up, a new plan to cull Brumbies. What's behind this and why is there so much controversy? First, though. Hack. The reality is we don't know at the moment how many sexual assaults are occurring. We know it's high. On Triple J. Just starting with a bit of an update, last week we spoke to a group campaigning for safer universities for students. They went to Canberra to plead for more action to stop sexual violence, harassment in university settings. At the time, we asked to speak with the group representing unis, but they weren't available. But Universities Australia gave a big address today at the National Press Club, and they answered questions about a few different issues. They spoke about a few different issues, including this one. Now, political reporter Claudia Long was there and she's with us now to fill us in. Hey, Claudia, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. What was this address from Universities Australia today about? What were they talking about? Well, essentially, the chair of uh, of Universities Australia, Professor David Lloyd, uh, was addressing the National Press Club around the number of challenges, a, a number of challenges really facing the university sector, um, and kind of trying to, I guess, uh, illustrate what the sector wants out of this major university review that's happening at the moment called the Universities Accord. Um, but what I really went along to ask him about was sexual violence on campus. So we know from the last 2021 National Student Safety Survey that 14,300 um, students are assaulted in university settings every year. Um, if that sounds like a big number, uh, get ready because the weekly amount is around 275 people. Um, that is colossal. Uh, and so I really want to ask him about what universities were doing around that because they have recently been very heavily criticised by uh, federal government in terms of Jason Clare, the education minister, saying they're not doing enough to curtail sexual violence. Um, they've been a really criticised around the parliament, actually across the aisle. We heard from Susan Lee this morning, the deputy opposition leader. She said that they hadn't done enough and also all the teal crossbenchers and the Greens. Uh, everyone is kind of united here, which doesn't happen very often in parliament, that more needs to be done. Um, and so I went along and asked him about that. And what I, I guess, wanted to get at was, you know, will there be another national student safety survey? Uh, because the last one was actually undertaken in 2021, which, uh, you know, I'm sure we all remember, was basically in the middle of a whole bunch of prolonged lockdowns. It had just come after, um, you know, rolling lockdowns for about a year and a half at that point. And so what experts have been telling us this week is that actually those figures that we were talking about just before are probably a lot higher now um, because we've had people going back to lessons on campus and not only that, you know, parties and colleges and uni camps and all sorts of stuff where we would expect perhaps incidents like this to happen. Um, and so essentially what they told us today at the press club was that they hadn't actually decided yet whether to run another national student safety survey. Now, in a very short time ago, we actually had a release come through uh, from Universities Australia. I've only just gotten across it myself, but it says uh, this is from Universities Australia that they are committed to revisiting and advancing an appropriately redesigned survey to be rolled out in 2024. So it looks like that is now going to happen. Another national student safety survey. Uh, and of course, you know, that is one of the 
recommendations from the Australian Human Rights Commission that that happens every three years. Um, they're fulfilling their responsibility there now and it seemed this morning that that may not happen. They still hadn't decided, but now we know that that looks like that's going to happen after this afternoon. Right, okay, because obviously, like you say, the concern is that the figures that we have, they're only estimates, they may not be accurate at all. We may not have a full idea of the scale of this. As you say, you've been speaking with like quite a few politicians across the spectrum of politics from all sides. What are they kind of saying about this? Yeah, I run after them. They can't escape me, Dan. <laughs> this is what happens when you work in the same building as politicians. Um, we've had a quite, I guess, a, ver- a variation on the specifics of this. But like I said, the one thing that really unites everybody is that there has not been enough done on this um, to essentially make sure that it is that what universities are doing to curtail sexual violence is working. So we've heard from um, the independent Teal crossbenchers, so that's people like independent MPs Zoe Daniel, Allegra Spender, Kylie Tink, um, Monique Ryan uh, and others, that they want to see a task force set up, um, which is something that students and advocates have been calling for for some time now. Um, And essentially what an independent task force would do is actually closely monitor the progress that universities are making in this area. They would look at the amount of reports that are coming in um, and essentially keep an on, you know, how that's fluctuating, where the programs are working, and also, really importantly, have the power to actually impose consequences on universities that they deem to not measure up. Now, that's something the Greens also want to see. Uh, and we've also, on the government side, though, we haven't really heard um, a yes or no on whether they'll do that yet. And the interesting thing about that is that in 2019, um, at Labor actually took that policy to the federal election. They Mm. promised a task force to hold universities accountable. That was something they said they'd do if they won government. Um, Jason Clare hasn't actually said um, either way. It's certainly something I'll be asking him about. We're doing... um, ABC News is going to do an interview with him tomorrow live on TikTok and Instagram at 12.30pm. Sneaky plug there, Dave. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to jump in with your questions, you can ask them, and that's certainly one that we'll be putting to the Minister um, because it's unclear exactly why Labor um, haven't gone on to implement that promise. What we have heard, though, from the Minister, who has been incredibly critical, I have to add, of the university sector's performance in this area, um, is that he has convened National Cabinet with all the education ministers from the states and territories um, to basically form a working group to look at a whole bunch of issues around um, campus culture and how staff and students are treated. Um, And one of those areas is sexual violence on campus and student safety. He's actually just appointed a special advisor to that group today. Um, Patty Kinnersley is her name. She's from Our Watch, which is a gendered violence prevention group. Um, And our watch have actually worked with Universities Australia in the past as well on programs around this. And she'll be advising those state and territory ministers around um, what to do around sexual violence on campus. So that is also happening at the same time. And they're going to be meeting for the first time next week. Well, there's a lot of conversation around this. We're definitely going to be keeping track of your sit down, your interview, uh, hear how that goes, because there's a lot of interest around this at the moment. And as you say, politicians from all sides are, are calling this out and calling for more action. We appreciate you keeping across it. Claudia Long in Parliament House, thanks for keeping us across it. Oh, thanks for having me. Over recent years, the numbers of horses in the park at Kosciuszko have become unsustainable. On Triple J. Do you know much about Brumbies? They're wild horses that roam the Kosciuszko National Park in New South Wales. Advocates, people who stick up for them, adore them. They say they're an important link to history, immortalised in the work of Australian poet Banjo Patterson, in books, movies. They're also really controversial because they're pests. Brumbies have been causing headaches for governments for years because numbers have exploded. Experts say they're ruining the environment, putting so many native species of plants and animals at risk. 
So the New South Wales government announced something big this week. It says it's trying to get numbers down and it's thinking about aerial shooting of Brumbies, so shooting them from helicopters to cull the animals. It's full-on stuff and obviously not everyone's happy. In a bit, we're going to chat to someone who's written a book about how the fight over wild horses has divided communities, led to attacks, threats, all kinds of things. But first, Joe Lauder has more. This has been a really controversial issue for years. Some people love the Brumbies and they see them as an icon of colonial Australia. You know, think the man from Snowy River. There was movement at the station. For the word had passed around that the colt from Old Regret had got away and joined the wild bush horses. But they're an introduced species. They're feral pests and they cause huge damage to the Australian landscape. They're obviously really large animals, feral horses, you know, several hundred kilos in some cases, uh, and they're hard-hoofed, and that means that they can destroy soil, leading to siltation of waterways. That's Professor Ewan Ritchie. He's an ecologist at Deakin Uni. Sphagnum moss, which are these deep sort of moss beds that, again, are really fragile, and these alpine zones get trampled, and that means that species like the northern corroboree frog, which needs those areas to breed in, can have damage to its breeding sites. He says that another impact of the horses is that they graze on the shrubs and that leaves all the little native animals exposed. Having vegetation cover that can actually have snow um, trapped on top of it actually creates somewhat of a, a blanket, if you like, through the winter. It also means in more open environments, things like feral cats and foxes can find um, native animals, particularly mammals. The number of feral horses in Kosciuszko has been going up and it means they're causing even more damage. Well, there's basically no natural predator of feral horses in Australia. Um, so we just don't have anything that's naturally limiting their populations at the moment, um, other than, of course, humans intervening. So the New South Wales government wants to do something about it. It's considering allowing aerial culling of horses in Kosciuszko to bring down the numbers. The previous New South Wales government introduced a target to get the horse population down to 3,000 in one third of the park by 2027. But the New South Wales Environment Minister, Penny Sharp, says they're way off target. The numbers in the park are anywhere before between 14,000 and 23,000. And, you know, national parks are supposed to be the places where we care for and protect all of our native species and we can't see them you know i'm not prepared to sort of see them go without looking at all of the options that we have around you know humanely reducing the numbers at the moment trapping rehoming and ground shooting are all used to manage the horses aerial shooting is a very um commonplace activity um on a, on a round and a range you know, goats pigs dogs um deer it's happening all over the state and it's it's done well Aerial shooting was banned after a controversial cull in another national park where news footage came out of horses being shot but not killed instantly. It's why Bromby advocates like Peter Cochran are against it. I mean, they tried this on in uh, 2001 in Guy Fawkes National Park. There were 600 horses shot up there. It was condemned universally. He reckons the government's estimates are way off. Will be answered, no doubt, when they start to shoot them because they'll soon find out there are none left. And that's exactly what they're wanting to do. They've exaggerated, wildly exaggerated the numbers for some time. But Professor Ewan Ritchie says aerial culling is the best way to manage this problem. I don't think anyone that I know is is particularly happy about seeing what we have to do with these horses. Horses are wonderful animals, but if we are to control their populations, this is by far the most effective method at scale um, for an animal such as this and in those conditions. Do you think there should be any horses in the park? 
I personally don't think there should be any feral horses in national parks or conservation reserves. I think, as I said, horses are wonderful animals and they bring people lots of joy. And there's plenty of places in Australia where we can enjoy horses, um, but that doesn't have to be in our conservation reserves. Our native wildlife, as we know, is really struggling. We need to do everything possible to give our native biodiversity a chance, and, and that's why we have to make these difficult choices. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. We've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, no one's romanticising feral rabbits as a historical link. The horses are just the same. Feral pests that need to go. Somebody else. Horses are lovely creatures, but like the less attractive introduced pests, rats, pigeons, millipedes, they need to be controlled for the sake of the environment and the native flora and fauna that are already under so much pressure. I do want to get into this a bit more with someone who has been living in this world for a while. They wrote a book about it called The Brumby Wars. Journalist Anthony Sharwood, he is with us now. Hey, Ant, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. To be clear, you support this proposal that's being put forward by the New South Wales government for aerial culling of brumbies in Kosciuszko National Park. I'm wondering, though, you've been looking into this issue for a while. Were you always in favour of culling brumbies or is it a position that you reached after looking into it for a bit? No, um, I am in favour of it. And even the people who who put in place a plan saying there should be brumbies in national parks in, in Kosciuszko National Park are in favour of some culling. Back in about 2000, were something like a 1,000 Brumbies in Kosciuszko National Park. And it was at that point that the head park ranger said, hey, you know what? They're churning up the stream beds with their hard hooves, their heavy bodies that are unlike any of the native animals here. They're doing a lot of damage. We've got to start managing them. So there were these plans over the years, some effective, some not. Then along out of the blue, like a lightning bolt, came John Barillaro, former New South Wales Deputy Premier in 2016, and he put in place a thing called the Kosciuszko Wild Horse Heritage Act. It protected Brumbies. It was the first legislation anywhere in Australia that protected an invasive species or or a non-native species in national parks. Understandably, ecological community was shocked that you would protect a non-native animal that's doing so much damage. But it happened. We had the plan protecting the Brumbies. Now, even that plan, Dave, said we have to keep their numbers to three or 4,000. There's currently closer to 20,000. So absolutely some method of culling the numbers or reducing the numbers is not only ecologically necessary to protect you know, what in my opinion is our greatest national treasure, as great as the Great Barrier Reef, but it's actually mandated by New South Wales law. I mean, people against this plan might say, look, we think the numbers are over-exaggerated, that the number of Brumbies that they're saying are in the national parks. How do you respond to that? I respond to that by saying these are the same people who reject climate science, who reject science on any matter, who get their information from Facebook University. These people are talking pure, 100% unmitigated BS, and they should not, under any circumstances, be listened to. Now, I haven't counted the Brumbies in Cozzy National Park, and you haven't, and the scientists who do it, do it through a complicated method that is used worldwide to estimate animal populations or wild animal populations in wild areas. So the numbers issue is a furphy, it's a load of crap, 
and we should move on from from those claims. I just want to be clear because there would be a lot of people listening now who uh, don't know maybe a whole lot about this issue, but uh, from what they have heard, they're against the culling of animals, not because they're conspiracy theorists or they have strange beliefs or they're extremists, but just because they, uh, you know, are strong supporters of animals. What would you say to those people? I'd say to those people that, that no one likes killing animals, but we do it by their millions every year. Feral goats, no one blinks an eye. We kill feral deer, no one blinks an eye. We kill feral cats, no one blinks an eye. We kill feral dogs, no one blinks an eye. There is almost no limit to the number of invasive species that sadly, as adults, we have to deal with if we want to preserve the sort of landscapes I've just talked about. There are obviously concerns uh, from people that this is inhumane. Like in the past, there've been aerial shootings and people have been concerned that the animals have not been killed quickly enough, uh, that it's really putting animals through a lot of suffering that they don't deserve. Isn't that fair enough? No, that's not even close to fair enough. Here's the deal. There was a shoot of... Brumbies up in northern New South Wales because there are pockets of them elsewhere in Australia, right, in in a thing called Guy Fawkes River National Park in 2000. They killed over 600 Brumbies, but they found one. They found one two weeks later that was still alive, and that was a genuine animal cruelty story, and the RSPCA got involved. And the reason I mention that particular one, Dave, is that is when a moratorium went on shooting in aerial shooting in New South Wales. That meant that there was an agreement that there would be no aerial shooting conducted because of one horse, because of one bullet in a herd of 600. Now, you've got to realise that country up there where they did it was full of gorges. It was really rough country. There was heavy tree um, cover. It's extremely difficult to shoot animals in that environment, but they did a really good job apart from that one horse. Kosciuszko, where most of the Brumbies are, is open, high, snowplain country. There is nowhere for them to run. If the people in the helicopter see that a horse is struggling and not killed on the first shot, they will follow it and get it in follow-up shots. Now, that's all a bit brutal. That's not particularly pleasant. I don't like killing horses. Nobody likes killing horses. What I do love is protecting Australia's greatest environmental treasures, and aerial shooting is by far by far, A, the most sort of methodical, quick and thorough way to do it, but B, also the most humane. Because when you do it on the ground, you get one or two horses and the rest of the herd buggers off and wonders what's happened. It's it's a horrible situation. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with writer, journalist Anthony Sharwood, who wrote a book called The Brumby Wars, and we're speaking about the New South Wales government's proposal for aerial culling of Brumbies. And... Why do you think there's so much emotion around this issue? They were celebrated in Banjo Patterson's poetry. They were celebrated in the famous Silver Brumby books, which a lot of Australian kids read, especially of earlier generation, by an author called Aline Mitchell. I actually interviewed her, her biographer and daughter for this book. And even she said, you know, the daughter of the author of the Silver Brumby book told me there's no way there should be as many as there are and nor would her mother, the author of the book, think think there should be as many as there are now. So there's this whole sort of literary mythology but now in the times we live in, they're sort of a post-colonial symbol. So look, it's not 
as simple as left and right, but the divide pretty much goes that way. Can you explain how dramatic the kind of backlash can be? Because it's not just a couple of protests, right? It's got quite serious attacks, threats, all kinds of things. I mean, living in the in the mountains, you won't get your mail delivered if 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 the postie is pro Brumbies and you're not. Like that, and, and you know, kids have been beaten up on school buses. People have had their their tires let down. Death threats galore. Thankfully, no one's been killed yet, but there have been violent incidents. And did you cop um, a heap of backlash from writing the book, mate? I, I I copped it when I wrote the book. I I, I cop it every time I tweet about it. I I'll cop it after doing this interview. I'll cop it forever, and that's okay because Kosciuszko National Park is an ecological treasure, and it comes first. And look, I just want to explain to your listeners, you know, before we wrap this up. What can a horse do to a national park? Aren't mountains these big, tough things? What's a little horse going to do? Look, the wetlands of Kosciuszko are the secret to the place. It has these tiny, delicate little ecosystems, these little streams that have very soft edges. On these, From these streams rise the Murray, the Murrumbidgee and, and the Snowy, three of our great rivers and two of our longest rivers. And when you have herds of horses running around, eroding the stream banks, uh, you completely trash that area. Do you think there should be any Brumbies left in the National Park? Uh, that's, that's a really good question. And yes, I advocate in the Brumby Wars that there should be a few left. And the reason I, I do that is because I'm a human being and I understand that other human beings have things they like. Now, I happen to think that Brumby lovers are misguided and that they should really champion the ecology of Kosciuszko rather than some escaped farm horses, which, by the way, is what they are. You know, there's no link to war horses or anything, which is another false thing that Brumby lovers claim. But look, to some extent, I respect these people. I respect their passion. And so, gosh, if they want to have Brumbies, let them have a few. We absolutely have to put Kosciuszko first. All right. Journalist Anthony Sharwood, author of the book The Brumby Wars, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. Hack. On Triple J. And we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. So many different opinions. Someone says, they're as much pests as foxes, rabbits and cane toads. Another person says, can't we just catch the Brumbies, fix them so they can't reproduce and then they'll die out from natural causes? Do we need it to be quicker? Is that why they're being so brutal? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what experts are saying, that that solution in terms of fertility mitigation wouldn't work quickly enough. So uh, that's why they're considering this aerial culling method is what the government's saying. Someone else says anything introduced causes issues. Perhaps the people that argue against culling of any pest species should get out of the city and come for a look themselves. That was Connor from Albury who said that. Someone else, it's inhumane to take any life, says that person. And another person, I own horses myself and know so many people who would rehome a Brumby if they had a chance. Maybe they should invest in rehoming them compared to aerial shooting, which is inhumane. A lot of people also asking about the meat and whether there could be uses there, why they're not using that meat um, uh, to, uh, for, for purposes of feeding people. Somebody else says, I spend a lot of time driving and hunting in areas around the Cozzies. There are so many Brumbies up there. And you can see the damage they too. So, look, we'll be hearing a lot more about that. The New South Wales government considering this until next month. That's when the deadline is, and then they'll make a decision. Hack. You got me feeling like a cowgirl. I mean, ready? It's huh? Yes, yes, yes. This chick's making bank. She goes live on TikTok. 70,000 people watching this girl go, hmm, got me feeling like a cowgirl. On Triple Jack.
what kind of energy are you? We talking main character, background energy? In the gaming world, NPCs, non-player characters, they're prolific. You know, you come across them, they say a line, that's about it. They're not a major part of the playing experience. They are, though, a major part of the TikTok experience. If you don't know what I'm talking about, here's a taste. Hack. I'm glizzy. I'm hungry. Mmm, crunchy corn, yum. In 100 years from now, when internet historians look back onto the trends of our time, these last few weeks will be considered the beginning of the end. TikTok Live is certainly one of the weirdest places on social media. Um, guacamole. Um, 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 chicken, yum. This bizarre NPC trend has taken over TikTok. TikToker Pinky Doll has popularized NPC streams. Balloon. Pretends to be an NPC in order to get donations. You send them a rose and they say, mmm, a rose. Hey, thanks for the, hey, thanks for the, hey, thanks for the rose. Now the creator is earning up to $7,000 per day. Oh, wow, Martin, wow, I love you, thank you. On Triple J. Whew, that was a wild ride. And people know what I'm talking about. Someone on the text line says the NBC trend is the cringiest stuff I've ever seen. Well, let's find out more. Dr Edith Hill is a senior lecturer at Flinders Uni, social media expert, and she's been looking right into this. Edith, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. What is going on with this NPC content? <laughs> How long has it been kicking around? That is such a great question. I mean, people have been acting like NPCs for a couple of years now, but it's only really reached its peak in the past couple of weeks or months because people have been doing it on TikTok Live. And that's where we see creators like Pinky Doll um, reaching extreme heights of fame. Why do you think people are obsessed with this? Like, what's around the popularity? It is weird. Um, I mean, you heard it in the soundbite just then. It is so strange and uncanny to see people pretending to be these repetitive robotic kind of characters. Um, there is some kind of element in there for some people around the fetishizing of women and the control aspect that happens there. You give them a gift or a rose or a coin or something and you get this very specific reaction out of them exactly when you want it. Um, but people also do it in cosplay and it's fun and it's silly and it's cutesy. There's so much there and for me I, it's just weird like you can't look away f from some of them it's kind of bizarre because it's like we're over authenticity or originality now we're not about that we're all about playing these repetitive characters you've unpacked this trend quite a bit you got real deep and you talked about how we commodify ourselves what do you mean by that that's a great question. So commodification of self has been happening on social media platforms really from the beginning or as soon as platforms introduced um, monetization or creator funds where people could actually make money off of the platforms and not just from having to seek out brand deals themselves to make money. Um, and we see it a lot on TikTok and it's criticised a lot about people um, selling themselves or selling a very specific kind of identity, but it's been happening for a really long time. Uh, and so the commodification of self really is portraying a very specific kind of persona um, for money. And some people might think that that's wrong or bad and for some it's just a, a job really. I did, you know, you touched on this before, but when you said that it's kind of a, a fetishization, I wanted to ask if that is an accurate way of describing this as a fetish. 
It really depends. I mean, anything can be if you ask the right person, I guess. Um, but for some people, it, it definitely is. Um, there are creators who are really popular on TikTok Live who do sex work on other platforms. Um, but for some people, it's just another facet of their online personality that they have. A lot of people who do NPC streams do have other content and it's just another avenue for people to find them and find their brand and have another creator that they support their work. Were you able to speak to some creators as part of this? I haven't, no. Um, I did try going live myself just to test it out. <laughs> How did that go? Um, it is so strange. I did it for 15 minutes. I got completely freaked out because someone said they saw me at Coles that day and then I closed my phone. What? Um, but it's really strange. I mean, TikTok Live isn't open to everyone. You can't just download the app and go live right away. You do have to have a certain amount of followers before that feature of the app becomes available to you. Um, but it gave me a very real sense of respect and fear <laughs> for the people who do this because it is hard. Imagine having to maintain a character with a set amount of phrases and actions and having to be so repetitive and so precise to maintain that audience attention, to get the money, to do these things um, for hours at a time. Because a lot of these streamers like Pinky Doll go live for multiple hours and that's how they're making so much money in a day. It's definitely something that is getting a a lot of people tuning in. We're going to be seeing a bit more of it, I imagine. Appreciate your uh, dive into this because you really, as I said, get deep into this. If you want to learn more, uh, Dr. Edith Hill has an article on the conversation. You can go read about it right now. But Edith, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. I love talking about this anytime. <laughs> You'll be back again. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.